Hello, and welcome to this episode of Dr. Bloom's Oral History Podcast Series. Today, we are going to step away from experiences with COVID and instead look at something different. In the midst of Prohibition, there was a raid by the Coast Guard on a still in the Jewish town of Woodbine, New Jersey. We hope you will join us on a deep dive into the history and case of this gruesome sting and see if we can uncover the truth and figure out what that means for communities and peoples today. Please note that while this case does involve discussion about Jewish people and anti-Semitism, none of the three of us are Jewish. Please take that into consideration when listening about the experiences of these Jewish people in Woodbine and our reactions to them. Please also note that the original oral history was taken by Dr. John Bloom. We hope you enjoy. Today we are going to be focusing on Woodbine, New Jersey, and the Jewish community that lived there, specifically about a story from the 1930s that was filmed as part of Dr. Bloom's oral history and a murder that took place within this community. So I'm going to let each of us on the podcast introduce who we are and what specifically we did research on for this podcast. Yeah, so I'm Josiah, and I studied more of the historical background of Woodbine and the surrounding Jewish colonies from the 1880s and their expulsion from Russia to uh, the beginnings of Prohibition, which are where our case takes place. I'm Lana, and I spent time connecting it to modern-day incidents of violence and anti-Semitism based on actual occurrences and conspiracy theory. And I studied the um, individual narrative of the narrator that Dr. Bloom interviewed, as well as a lot of newspaper research about the murder and the raid that took place before the murder. Awesome. So I started in 1880 in the western part of Russia, actually, um, located around Moscow, um, what was Stalingrad. That it was it wasn't Stalingrad then, um, but that area, um, and the Jewish persecution that began there, uh, called pogroms by the Russian people. They had riots against. The Jewish population and the Jewish people were given two options by the government and the people. They could either move to central Russia or they could go west and leave Russia. And a great deal of them did go west and leave. They tried to seek asylum in Germany, in France, in other parts of Western Europe. And the Jewish communities there were not that receptive to these people coming in. They tried to cast them out. They didn't want them there because they caused tension between the Jewish populations already integrated into the German and French communities and the uh, people who were not Jewish in those communities. They had struck a fragile balance and the introduction of new people into the area kind of upset that balance. And so there were a couple of solutions put up, um, moving them to other parts of Western Europe, which refused to take them in until a couple of funds, most notably um, funds out of Austria, came together to try and send them to the New World, to America. Uh, now, this was 1880, so it was post-Civil War. America was well into uh, its uh, great expansion. And 
the American Jewish community was slightly more receptive, at least in the beginning. And so many different communities and people set up colonies in the New World, most notable of which for our case is the Baron Maurice de Hirsch, a very wealthy Austrian Jewish man. And he was a banker, and he sponsored a lot of different communities in America, but he didn't want the communities to focus on factories or production. He wanted them to focus on agriculture, um, at least in the beginning. He ended up switching over. But he believed that philanthropy is required of him since he has money. However, he does not like it. He thinks it's a waste of time and people can become too dependent on it, which is kind of goofy to me. But, uh, you know, I understand where he's coming from. So he put a $2.4 million donation in the DeHurst Trust to set up colonies in the New World. Uh, other groups set up in the Midwest, in Louisiana, um, but he stayed on the East Coast near New Jersey. The most notable of these colonies was Woodbine, which we will focus on today with the incidents relating to Prohibition and the stills. So there were eight points. Loans to immigrants from Russia and Romania. So he wanted to focus on those people since they were the ones most affected and not able to find places within Western Europe. The fund can be used to transport immigrants. The fund can be used to teach immigrants trades and contribute to their support while learning trades. It can be used to improve mechanical training for adults and youths and instruct them in English. It can be used to instruct them for agricultural work and improve methods of farming. There were a lot of new um, methods and systems in the U.S. that were not available in Eastern Europe that many uh, people who moved over there had to learn how to use. So that fund could also be used for that. There was also cooperation with established agencies in the U.S. And also any other method of relief and education, uh, as long as approved by the trustees who guarded the trust. And originally it started, and it ended up sticking around this way, that only the Jewish people who had the means to farm were carried over. Uh, it slightly expanded afterwards, but mostly it was boys from Russia who had an aptitude for farming. And even though they sent over people that were picked for this exact task, there was still a great amount of intervention needed. So he wanted aptitude tests, he put funding, but there was a lot of funding required to keep these colonies afloat. And, and the most notable of these, as I mentioned, were in New Jersey and Woodbine. And Woodbine had a couple of unique occurrences. Because of its location and proximity to large Puritan groups, it had a lot of strife that kind of expanded as we continued. And we'll look into the lead up to these, these murders that we're discussing. But it started in the 1890s when they first immigrated. There was a lot of persecution, a lot of strife, um, most notably because Jewish people kept their stores open on Sundays and they danced on Sundays because their Sabbath is Saturday. Now, the Puritans were very non-receptive to this. Um, there were quite a few people who were fined, had spent days in jail. Um, a woman who was serving alcohol spent 100 days in prison and any person this was before prohibition by the way any person of jewish descent who was found to have committed an alcohol related crime well i say crime but crime by the puritan faith was placed into a newspaper um 
with their name, identity, and what they did, uh, which was highly focused on the Jewish population more so than any other group of people. And they would often dance and have celebrations on Sunday because or Saturday night sometimes at the end of their um, Sabbath. And dancing was not allowed in the Puritan faith. And so at some point, armed militias and guards would come and try to disrupt the celebrations and organizations that the Jewish community put together. It created a lot of issues and a lot of strife. And as we approached the era of prohibition in the U.S., these issues only grew and expanded. Uh, as anti-Semitism started to firmly take root from all of these problems and a means to persecute Jewish people more than others um, through the illegal trade of alcohol, the Puritans and the people from this area that weren't Jewish took great advantage to unfairly target people of Jewish descent in the area. Okay, so some background before we get into the nitty-gritty details of the murder. Uh, this murder is focused around the Benson family, who, like we heard, like a lot of other immigrants, they their father and the older siblings immigrated from Russia to Woodbine because of the popcorns. The family at the time of the murder consisted of six brothers and three sisters. There are four main brothers that are important to the story that I'm going to tell today, which are Herman, who ends up being murdered, spoiler alert, uh, Lewis, who is the father of the man who was interviewed for the oral history, um, and he is eventually imprisoned, Jacob, who is the owner of the farm, and Isaac, who is tried for an assault related to the raid. So first we're going to play this oral history clip from Martin Benson, who if I just explained was Lewis Benson's son. So all of those four men were his uncles. During the era that we're speaking about in the 30s, uh, bootlegging was a big thing in the United States. And if, what a lot of people don't know, that the man that's in charge of the ADL or what, what's his, uh, Brownson? Right. His family was one of the biggest bootlegging families in the United States. Joseph Kennedy's was. Sure. A lot of other uh, from the, and I knew some, some of these people I happened to have known as a kid. And, but some of the big whiskey companies that we have today and the wonderful families, and uh, they, they were into bootlegging and they evaded tax. That was the whole thing. They, uh, and the story was an exaggerated story. At first, for years, uh, they used to bring in whiskey from, uh, it would come in from Nova Scotia, but it actually came from Scotland to Nova Scotia, and they had Canadian whiskeys. They'd bring it in by big ships, and uh, my uncle and a, a, another man had uh, small boats, and uh, my uncle kept his on Dennis Creek, and about eight miles away from Wood 27 miles. And they used to go out the creek and go out in the bay, and uh, you know, they would get these uh, packages, they were wrapped about, I would say about 18 inches square, and they were all wrapped up in cork and uh, wooden cork, and then they had uh, um, burlap over them. That was the real Scotch whiskeys, the real stuff. And uh, some of the biggest men in Washington, D.C., 
I swear to God, came to my house, and they would come down from Washington, D.C. and uh, to buy uh, so many bottles and go to someplace else. And my family was only, they were not the boot, they only worked for for the uh, big people. They were not the big people. The big people were like Bronfman and stuff like that. Zillman, different ones. But uh, they had the stuff and they would sell it like that. But a lot of it went to New York to the uh, different kinds of places, uh, speakeasies and nightclubs and things. But later on in the years, they uh, went into the stills where they manufactured their own. And uh, that particular evening, my father was at the still and uh, one of my uncles and about six other men. And my this uncle, Herman, was in Atlantic City and he was at the uh, uh, Banker's Tavern. And somebody called him and told him that there was going to be a raid. And what happened was that these men, the Coast Guard, and I'm saying this and you can quote me, I was in the service during the war and after war and I think a lot of military service. But if you would go back and take a look at people that were in the Coast Guard previous to the war, they were nothing but bums and drunks. And I'm telling you, this is a fact. And they were all paid off. Most all of them were paid off. My father, they'd come to the house. My father would pay. He would get money from different bosses, and they'd pay him off. And uh, they went to the hotel in Woodbine, and somebody got them good and drunk, and they went out there. They told them they went out there. And uh, when they went out there, still somebody called Atlantic City from the hotel, and they called Atlantic City and told my uncle that they were raiding the place. And he went out there, and they tell you that he had all kinds of guns, and he had all kinds of things, and uh, it is really, uh, he, he was a tough type of guy. The family were tough. My father was tough. There was nothing. They were not gangsters. They were in rackets as far as bootlegging. And uh, and these guys just machine gunned them and, and shot them to death. And uh, if they, you speak to anybody like at Gladys's age or anybody that my age or back, they will tell you he had a trucking company and he used to haul the farm produce and stuff. They did not have an ambulance. Anybody that was sick, my uncle took them to the hospitals, whether it was New York, Philadelphia, or Atlantic City, because that was Atlantic City was close to the hospital. In this clip, there's a couple of important things that we hear as sort of a first-person perspective, but as someone who wasn't a witness to the raid. He talks about the Coast Guard, and in the very beginning of the clip, he sort of celebrates it and recognize it, recognizes it as an institution that he was a part of. But on the other hand, he calls them bums and drunks when he's talking about them in the relation of their involvement with his uncles and essentially the family business. Another important thing that he talks about is these big organizations that he accuses of being involved in bootlegging. One of the most important that he mentions my name is the ADL, which is the Anti-Defamation League. And they are today and back then largely responsible for counteracting anti-semitism so he's basically accusing these large corporations that are supposed to be on the side of the jewish people for being involved in this illegal trade and not really helping them as much as they should be he also mentions his father lewis and 
sort of absolves him from a lot of the guilt of being present during the raid. And he also talks about his uncle, which is his uncle Herman, who was the one that ended up being murdered in the raid. He talks about him being informed of the raid. And his details are a little bit shaky on this. But the part that's really important is that he talks about the Coast Guard claiming that his uncle showed up with a lot of guns and threatened them, which is a key piece of the story. And he seems to discount this alleged action of his uncle. So after that clip, I try to target this idea of memory and the way that Marty remembers the story of his uncles and his father related to the newspaper research that I did. So I'm going to tell the story from what I could gather from the newspaper research. So it starts March 14th, 1935 is the date of the raid and of the murder. So a little bit of background on raids during this time, specifically Coast Guard raids. The Coast Guard would use small planes that could fly very low levels on land and on sea. And so they would use these planes to scout out property that potentially had stills or were reported as having stills so they could see the land. And then additionally, a lot of the alcohol was transported on boats or ships. And so they could use these planes to land on the water and police potential varying watercraft that potentially had alcohol on them. So using these planes is how they initially spotted the Benson farm as well as the still. And after they spotted it, they staked out the farm, essentially creating a sting operation where they caught Lewis driving onto the property with his co-workers, let's just call them. And as they arrived on the property, the Coast Guard took them into custody, used their information to lure Herman back to the still, which we heard a little bit of in the oral history clip. Upon Herman's arrival, and this is all printed in the newspaper, he is quoted as threatening the officers with a sawed-off shotgun and refusing to lower his guns, at which point they opened fire on him. Some accounts saying that they only shot him three times and some accounts stating that they used a machine gun and shot him any number of times. He didn't die on the scene. He died the next morning in the hospital. And that was very important in the Woodbine community because he was the local fire chief. And so he was a very well-respected individual in the community. And so there's quite a lot of newspapers detailing his murder in just as much detail as I just explained it. And so over the following months, Lewis, as well as the two other men that were initially captured that night, are put on trial. And there's not a huge amount of detail in the newspapers about exactly what went on in the trial, but they are all mentioned by full names, as we heard was very common for Jewish people who were put in prison for alcohol trafficking. So in the end, Lewis received the highest sentence, which amounted to six months in jail and a fine. The other men that were tried at the same time as him also had to pay fines, but they were never imprisoned. And additionally, six months later, around January 
Six more of the men that were involved in operating this same still were put on trial. All of those men had to pay fines. And three months after that, another seven men were put on trial, and all of them had to pay fines. All of these men were mentioned by full name in the trial, in the newspapers as well. And then the final trial in this saga was for Isaac Benson, who allegedly assaulted a Coast Guard officer a year after his brother was murdered because the officer attempted to uh, gain access to his brother Herman's truck for an investigation by the Coast Guard. Isaac was tried for assault and mentioned f- by f- his full name as being tried for assault and what who the assault was against, but he could never be charged because the jury decided that the government could not produce suffic- sufficient evidence to support the claim. So that's over about a year all of these trials happened um, for all of these different men and all of them are mentioned by full name in the newspaper. It's also important to mention that during this time and in this community because of the Great Depression a lot of them resorted to still operation or trafficking alcohol because it was the best way to support their families. So these men found themselves on farms that couldn't support their family, much less their community, and resorted to alcohol distribution and transport to support their families being in a minority community and isolated and essentially ostracized from the surrounding communities. As we heard, it was prevalent when the community started, but it continued through even up until this point. And we can see that in the newspapers mentioning that by full names. So Lana's going to talk a little bit more about how this continues even today. Yeah, so anti-Semitism has unfortunately been on the rise, especially here in the U.S. The ADL actually tracked that last year in 2021, there were 2,717 incidents, reported incidents of anti-Semitism, whether that was a physical attack or like verbal or that kind of thing. And that was a 34% rise from the previous year, 2020. And in total, that 2,717 averages out to about seven anti-Semitic incidents per day, which is deeply (laughs) terrible and unfortunate. And there recently in a few states, mostly around New York and New Jersey, there are incidents of synagogues being threatened to the point that like everyone um, was told not to go to temple and to services for a period of time until they found the people who were making these threats and had them arrested. One of these incidents is the person who threatened and was later arrested was actually only an 18-year-old. And he was tried in Middlesex County, New Jersey, which is in the same state as Woodbine, of course. Um, I'm not entirely sure how far away it is from Woodbine, but same state. One of the reasons for this rise in anti-Semitism is a rise in conspiracy theory culture. Um, And unfortunately, this is often perpetuated by people who have large platforms. One of these people is Kanye West, who in a recent Twitter spew went on to talk about Jewish people and how he essentially he said he couldn't be anti-Semitic because he was black, because... Jewish people were also black people, 
it was a very interesting and confusing rant that he went on. And it's deeply dangerous and it has perpetuated a lot of he perpetuated a lot of stereotypes about Jewish people and including like control over the media and control over banks, which is an unfortunately popular idea that has been around for a long time. But all of these sort of attacks have just been on the rise in the last several years. And the ADL, the ADL um, CEO, Jonathan Green Platt, actually wrote a book about this called It Could Happen Here, where he talked about the hate in the U.S. and how especially anti-Semitism is on the rise and how a lot of those issues can can and will eventually lead to something hugely violent. A few years ago in Pittsburgh, there was a shooting in a synagogue and Greenblatt's, a lot of Greenblatt's points were about how if it doesn't stop and how we don't find a way to stop it, something like what happened 70 years ago could happen again. And that's really scary. Yeah, so I just have a question or two. I was looking at the linking between your two sections. As far as modern-day anti-Semitism is concerned and related to these murders, how much do you two think that government intervention, inaction, and propagation has continued this trend of anti-Semitism versus just hate among people themselves? Yeah, I think for sure. And, like, specifically in, like, the case that we're looking at, I think the two trials are very interesting. First, the trial being of, like, of Jacob being responsible for running the still and the way that he was tried and, like, eventually convicted, obviously had to go to jail, had to pay the fines. And then not even a year later, we have his brother being charged for assault and... Both of these are the same government agency um, with two very different results. And so, like, there's obvious government involvement, but in addition to that, there's also the involvement of the community. And so you have to imagine that if these two men are tried in the same court, that the the judge really isn't going to change. It didn't mention who the judge was, but... The community isn't going to change that much in a year, but the results did change. And so I think it's interesting when we talk about community and talk about like groups who are ostracized. In this case, obviously, the Jewish people being a minority and in some ways they withdrew themselves from the community. But in other ways, like you talked about Josiah at the beginning, they were ostracized and their full names are in the newspaper and like... They don't really have any anonymity when it comes to crimes, whereas other people that were part of this same community would have just their first names or just a man was tried for this. And so, like, there's a lot of disparity between, like, the cases that were tried as well as, like, the way the community handled it. And so, like, kind of establishing, like, a baseline, even within government, like Alana was saying, like, we don't accept this at any level is something that like we don't really see unless it's from you know either the Jewish people saying like this is not okay or like individual nonprofit organizations or organizations of people saying we need to do something about this but nothing's really happening. I think definitely there's been a lot of government inaction in terms of dealing with 
especially like the rise of anti-Semitist attacks and like rhetoric that appears a lot of times even within like the political sphere let alone like the regular layman sphere there's a lot of discussions of persons in government who have made comments about you know holocaust denial and things but nobody ever really talks about like the actual like oh hey maybe we should tell this person like to stop talking about that or deal with the things that they say yeah yeah that's really interesting and i also just wanted to bring up really quickly that the i mean obviously there were disparages between the treatment of jewish people and non-jewish people during prohibition and i don't know caitlin if you look too much into that itself but just in i can think of off the top of my head the kennedy family which were not jewish actually profited greatly from prohibition they were very famously they would very famously run alcohol uh out from international waters to new york and new jersey harbors and it helped fund the kennedy campaign and there was very little retribution beyond a very slight smack on the wrist and so i don't know if you found in your research anything that kind of showed the stark contrast between Jewish and non-Jewish treatment during Prohibition. Yeah, I didn't really look in that too in-depth. Um, obviously, like, we know it exists, but it's also interesting, like, to talk about it in a modern-day sense of, like, over-policing in minority communities, not just Jewish communities, but, you know, black communities, and the way that they're policed, like, it's statistically proven that they're policed more often than white communities. And so it's just interesting to look at that. And if we think about this case of prohibition, how much were these airplanes flying over only places like Woodbine, you know what I mean? Or only places where there are minorities profiting off like the distribution of illegal alcohol. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to our discussion of just a very small part of Dr. Bloom's research into Woodbine, New Jersey, and the Jewish colony there. If you have more questions or want to learn more about Woodbine, New Jersey, and Jewish colonies in southern New Jersey in general, you can contact Dr. Bloom at jdblue@ship.edu. Once again, that is jdbl oo at ship.edu. Have a wonderful rest of your day and enjoy the rest of our classes series on COVID's impact in the Cumberland Valley.